Pull out your motors, hook up some pulleys, and build some incredible machines. And this week's game, The Incredible Machine. Welcome to episode number two of Like a DOS, the podcast on which I play, discuss, and review games released for the DOS operating system, which I just released as kind of redundant. My name is Rob Flack O'Hara, and on this episode of Like a DOS, I will be playing The Incredible Machine, originally released for the IBM PC by Sierra Online in 1983. Before we get started, I'd like to remind you of two links. The first one is podcast.robohara.com, the website where you can find all my podcasts and information about all the shows I do. The other is patreon.com forward slash Rob O'Hara. All my Patreon supporters get behind the scenes blog posts, weekly random Rob videos, access to the Amigos retro gaming discord server, and all kinds of other additional perks. To find out more, visit patreon.com forward slash Rob O'Hara. Now, I made a promise to myself that I would not talk about the Commodore 64 on my new DOS-related podcast, but there's a point that I'd like to make about computer hardware, and it's pretty easily made using the Commodore 64 as an example. The Commodore 64 came with two DB9-style ports on the side of the machine. Those are a lot of people that aren't familiar with them would call them Atari joystick-style ports. And hardware developers didn't know how game programmers would use those ports. The ports support joysticks, but they also support paddles. They also supported the koala pad and other types of inputs. But when we look back... At the game library, there are tens of thousands of games on the Commodore 64 that use the joystick. There are a dozen, roughly, games that use the Commodore paddles, and maybe as many programs that use the Koala Pad. So hardware developers don't always know how people are going to take advantage of the hardware interfaces that they have provided. The reason I make that point is because our first IBM computer, the IBM PC Jr., had a few ports on the back. Uh, it had no mouse port, but it did have a light pen port. <laughs> it also came with a keyboard that had infrared technology. It was sold as a wireless keyboard that used a line of sight IR connection, uh, which meant it was wireless as long as the keyboard was placed directly in front of the computer, <laughs> was not turned uh, to an angle, was not placed in your lap. I think there's a lot more places that the average USB keyboard could be placed <laughs> as compared to the PC Junior's wireless keyboard. Uh, to add a mouse to our PC Junior, we had to buy what was called a sidecar. The PC Junior didn't have as many slots as what we think of today on a PC. And so upgrades were physically attached to the outside of the case <laughs> and could be stacked. So the sidecar that we owned added 128K of RAM to our PC Junior, but also gave you a real-time clock and a mouse port. Now, a mouse gives you the ability to create different types of software. You can control a cursor on a monitor with a joystick, but it's not as precise. It's not as accurate. It's not as fast. It's not as intuitive. And so having a mouse at developer's disposal changed the types of programs, software, and games that were being developed. On our PC, we had a mouse for many years before we ever had a joystick. So if you think about games like the early Sierra games, the early LucasArts games, the point-and-click style adventures, yes, we had some of those on 8-bit computers that didn't have mice. We had those on other systems, but they played so much better with a mouse. And so 
I kind of wanted to lead in with that by saying that uh, The Incredible Machine is a game that would not have been as good and may not have come around at all if it weren't for the computer mouse. Now, The Incredible Machine, as I mentioned, was originally published for the IBM PC in 1993 by Sierra Online. It is a game for one player that uses the mouse control. Now, something I have learned about putting together so many podcasts about computer games is that very often the publisher is not the same as a game's developer. And so when I can find information about both of those parties, I will share them. Uh, when I was a kid, I thought Load Runner was a Broderbund game and that Epic's were the people behind Rogue. And those are companies that publish those games, but those aren't the companies that develop those games. And so I have spent most of my life believing that The Incredible Machine was a Sierra game. And while it was published by Sierra, they aren't the people who developed it. So before we get started, let's talk a little bit about Sierra Online. Uh, the company was founded in 1979 by Ken and Roberta Williams. They were originally called Online Systems. Uh, Ken had a background in computers. He was originally a programmer for IBM, and he got hooked, as many of us did, on early text adventures. And so he and Roberta played Colossal Cave, and they moved on to other text adventures. I read an interview where they talked about playing a lot of the early Scott Adams text adventures, which I did, my family did as well. And they wanted to create their own text adventures, but Roberta said it would be better if they included graphics. And so the two of them wrote and released Mystery House in 1980, which is considered to be the first computer adventure game to have graphics. Now, based on that title, they released multiple high-res adventures. Uh, that was called the High-Res Adventure Series. And that lasted for a few years from 1980 to 1982. Now, in 1982, the couple moved to Oakhurst, California, which is apparently right outside the Sierra Mountains, and they rebranded themselves as Sierra Online. Now, in 1983, Ken Williams was contacted by IBM to develop a game that would show off the graphic and sound capabilities of IBM's new computer, the PC Junior. And so Ken and Roberta combined their skill sets and developed the genre-defining King's Quest, which was released in 1984, uh, coincided with the release of the PC Junior uh, to develop that game, they developed their own interpreter called the Adventure Game Interpreter, or AGI, and the engine was used by other employees of Sierra to create games such as Space Quest, and then Leisure Suit Larry, and then the Police Quest games in 1987, and the Quest for Glory games in 1989. Now, at some point during that time, the engine was rewritten and rebranded as the Sierra Creative Interpreter, which is S. SCI, and that was done in 1988. So if you are a fan of emulating these old adventures, you may have seen the terms AGI and SCI, and that's what those things stand for. In 1995, Sierra released Phantasmagoria, which was a point-and-click puzzle-style adventure that took place in a haunted house and filled, I believe, seven CD-ROMs. It took advantage of the CD-ROM technology that was being pushed at the time. Uh, they have continued to publish many popular games. In 1996, they published Half-Life. Uh, they were purchased by CUC International in 1996, and Ken and Roberta both left the company in 1998. Eventually, Sierra was repurchased and eventually merged with Activision. I looked up Sierra.com, which appears to go to a running shoe <laughs> company. It has nothing to do with computer games. And if you go to SierraOnline.com, it reroutes you to Activision's homepage. If you want to read more about the story of Sierra, and it's very, very interesting, Ken Williams has published his own memoir. It is called Not All Fairy Tales Have Had. Happy Endings, The Rise and Fall of Sierra Online. It's a fantastic book. I own it. It's, it's very interesting if you are interested in the early days of computer game programming. Uh, there's another book out called The Sierra Adventure, The Story of Sierra Online, and that's another great read, uh, again, if you're into this era of computer games. Now, 
if you look at the box on the side, on the spine towards the bottom, it says Jeff Tanell productions. So it seems to me that there's someone else that was responsible for the development of this game. And in fact, the floppy disk itself says dynamics, which I know is a separate company. So Jeff Tanell uh, worked for Dynamics. He was the founder of Dynamics, along with several other programmers, including a gentleman named Kevin Ryan, who also programmed The Incredible Machine. Uh, they cut their teeth on early simulation-style games. They worked on Arctic Fox. They worked on Sky Fox 2. They did several vehicle-style simulation war games, I guess you would call those things. They then released a game called Project Firestart, which was a point-and-click-style adventure, which moved them into the same market as Sierra. They also released a game called David Wolf Secret Agent. David Wolf's Secret Agent is such a strange game that it definitely deserves its own show. I may or may not play that, but the best way to describe it is it is in the style of a full motion video or FMV style adventure, except for it doesn't contain full motion video. It contains uh, 16 color graphics, still graphics of the scenes. It's definitely an odd one. Um, but again, this engine that they developed to make their own point and click style adventures was recycled. Uh, they created Rise of the Dragon and Heart of China, which they described as interactive fiction, but not in the definition we use of interactive fiction uh, as we think of text adventures. These were more point and click style games where you move through a story and got to see different still pictures. Um, Probably the game that's best known that used their engine was Willie Beamish. Uh, and so Willie Beamish was the, used the same engine as Rise of the Dragon and Heart of China, but was more of a comic book style game. And Willie Beamish is a classic that it someday will be covered on Like a Doss. Now, in the middle of all this, Dynamics was purchased by Sierra for $1.5 million in 1990. And Jeff Tunnell, who had been the project manager of many of these games, decided that he did not like that role. He did not like leading large teams uh, on software projects. What he enjoyed was working with a very small group or working by himself and developing small games. And he was ready to leave Dynamics and Sierra. But Ken Williams supported Jeff's idea in development and said, if you have an idea and you want to work on a game with a small group or by yourself, why don't you try that? And so uh, Jeff Tunnell formed Jeff Tunnell Productions, which was a very small group under Dynamics, which was under Sierra at this point. And Jeff had an idea that he had been chewing on for a long time. He said that he had been greatly inspired by Pinball Construction Set, which is a very early title that allowed uh, gamers to create their own pinball machines or pinball tables by dropping and dragging different pieces and arranging them virtually in a game. He was also inspired by the board game Mousetrap, where you could create these very complicated machines uh, to perform a very simple task. And so he combined this idea of pinball construction set with this idea of a virtual mousetrap style game. And that became the seed for what we now know as the incredible machine. incredible machine players must solve a series of puzzles by assembling machines of increasing levels of complexity 
Each puzzle or level has a single goal, something like pop a balloon or put a ball into a box. And to construct your machine, players are provided with a collection of parts to use. Now, in early levels, players will only be given the parts needed to complete each level, and most of the early puzzles only have one solution. In later levels, players could choose from many different types of tools, and each puzzle may have multiple solutions. The goal of the game is to solve each puzzle and eventually solve all the puzzles contained within the game. Many people tend to describe The Incredible Machine as a program in which you create Rube Goldberg-style devices. That is a term or a name that I was very familiar with, but I wasn't necessarily familiar with the person. The best example I could give you of a Rube Goldberg-style device is the scene in Pee-wee's Big Adventure, in which Pee-wee has this giant machine that does multiple different things that eventually pours him a bowl of cereal and and cooks his toast. Uh, Another example is the gate opening device in the opening of Goonies in which balls have to roll down different ramps, different things have to happen, and eventually it opens a gate, which is obviously a very simple thing for someone to just be able to open the gate. Uh, Again, the board game Mousetrap is a Rube Goldberg-style device. It involves assembling a machine with many, many different parts to set off a mousetrap, which would be easily set off without that device. Uh, I was under the impression that Rube Goldberg was some sort of inventor, but he was not. He was a cartoonist. Uh, There are written references to his cartoons that date back to the 1920s. On the Wikipedia page about Rube Goldberg, there is a example of one of his cartoons that contains a self-wiping napkin, which is attached to a headdress with a bunch of different parts that have to uh, trigger each other in a chain reaction to eventually wipe his face with a napkin. Uh, the term Rube Goldberg, in the sense of describing an overly complicated machine designed to solve a very simple task was added to the random house dictionary in 1966. There are many competitions across the United States where teams must uh, develop or design Rube Goldberg style devices. Purdue university was one of the first ones that began hosting a Rube Goldberg contest in 1987. MIT hosts a similar contest One thing I did not know is that the term Rube Goldberg is definitely an American term, and there are other people's names that are used in other countries. For example, in the UK, these are sometimes described as Heath Robinson contraptions. I've never heard that. I was not familiar with that at all. Uh, But in the US, if you mention a Rube Goldberg style contraption, most people will know what you're talking about. Now, There is a line that appears in the Wikipedia article about The Incredible Machine, and I saw this exact line quoted in multiple articles about the game, and this is the exact quote. The Incredible Machine, the first game in the series, was originally going to be developed by Electronic Arts for the Commodore 64 in 1984, but Dynamics worked on Arctic Fox for the Amiga instead, and work did not start on The Incredible Machine until the spring of 1992. Kevin Ryan programmed The Incredible Machine in nine months on a $36,000 budget. That paragraph did not make sense to me when I saw it originally, but based on what we know now about Jeff Tunnell and his relationship with Dynamics, it makes a little bit more sense. When it says Electronic Arts was going to develop the game in 1984, we know that Dynamics was making games at that time. It says that Dynamics worked on Arctic Fox for the Amiga instead, and work did not begin on the Incredible Machines until the spring of 1992. We know that is after after the acquisition of Dynamics, after they were purchased by Sierra. So all of these things line up. It's just the details of the story aren't really in this uh, section. And again, it says Kevin Ryan programmed the Incredible Machine in nine months. Kevin Ryan was an employee of Dynamics on a $36,000 budget. It is important to talk about the budget of this game in only the sense that 
game budgets were steadily increasing. Full motion video games were on the horizon. These were not cheap to make. They required hiring actors of varying levels of <laughs> acting ability. Uh, if you had speech, if you had CD-ROMs that needed to be pressed, uh, all these things cost money. You know, the incredible machine ships on a single floppy disk. The very first version shipped, uh, shipped on a floppy disk. So it didn't need to be on a CD-ROM. It didn't need all these uh, voice actors and full motion video and all these other expenses that were being built into games at that time. So uh, $36,000 is a pretty low budget, and this game made millions of dollars in profits in return. So let's take a look at the box that the Incredible Machine came in. It originally shipped in a full-size PC box. The front has the illusion that the title has been screwed onto the box. There are uh, the tops of, of screw heads that are fake that are in the corners of the box. We have the logo that says The Incredible Machine, and then we have an artist depiction of what one of these machines might look like. And the artist's depiction is made up completely of things that do exist in the game. For example, you can see an eight ball. You will see a fish in a fishbowl. You will see a cat. There are cannons. These are all tools that you can use in the game. The back of the box has pictures of the game and a lot of text that explains what this game looks like. It says, want to build a better mousetrap? All it takes are bike riding monkeys, treadmill mice, and a few bowling balls. Genius and junk combined to solve the convoluted contraptions in the incredible machine. Start with a fanciful framework of levers and gears and basketballs. Then search the toolbox for your own gadgetry and set up a chain reaction that will free the cat or exercise the mice or burst balloons. Connect wheels and cycles, seesaws and platforms while building your mechanical solutions. You might have to flip pieces in large objects or position the parts precisely to find the perfect blend of mechanics and madness in your solution to the incredible machine. Then there is a drawing of machine with handwritten notes. Monkey sees banana. Cat makes light go on. Put cat on seesaw. Bowling ball falls on seesaw. Includes 45 animated parts to create working machines. Solve over 75 levels of intriguing puzzles. Wild musical score and zany sound effects. Super high-res VGA graphics. Change air pressure and gravity for outrageous results. Invent your own wacky machines in freeform mode. So this gives you a basic idea of what is included in this software title. The manual is also very interesting. The first seven or eight pages of the manual are notes, like mad scientist notes about creating machines. It doesn't tell you anything about the game per se, but it does set this uh, feeling that you are a scientist, that you are going to be able to create whatever you want with the tools that are created in this game. Uh, the front of the manual has pictures of gears and all the drawings look like mechanical engineering drawings. It's very uh, inviting. It makes you want to fire up this game. There's a quote towards the beginning of the manual that says, the incredible machine is like a puzzle solving erector set. Now, that may be slightly dated. I think in the 1990s, people that were buying this title who would have been 20 or possibly 30 years old would be familiar with erector sets. I don't know that most kids today have ever seen or might not even know what an erector set. But if you are of a certain age and you're familiar with those that's a pretty good description of what this is. It's a bunch of parts that you'll be able to put together to solve puzzles. Now, like many games from this era, the manual is not just there to explain how to play the game. It is also part of the copy protection. At the bottom of each page are three different tools. And when you fire the game up, it will list a page number and you must flip to that page number and select those three tools for the game to boot. Fortunately, most modern versions have removed this copy protection and the manual is not required. 
on the spine of the box, we are given the PC requirements. Now, this is something that's new and something that I don't normally talk about on my other podcast because every Commodore 64 game ran on every Commodore 64. Uh, if you think about console games like old Nintendo games or even modern Xbox games or PlayStation games, the consoles are all identical. So there usually aren't requirements unless there's a, a unique add-on required for a specific game. But by and large, all games will work on a, on a standard console. This was not the case with PC hardware. Uh, hardware was constantly advancing. There were faster processors, more RAM, uh, larger hard drives, different video cards. And so you had to look at the requirements on the side of these programs and make sure that what you were purchasing would work on the computer that you owned. The side of the spine of this title says that it requires a 386SX or better. You need 640K of RAM, VGA, a hard drive, drive and a mouse for audio it says the game supports the thunderboard which was a 8-bit uh, sound card the pro audio spectrum sound blaster adlib roland mt32 and compat <laughs> there wasn't enough room to say compatible devices now when you boot the game you immediately are presented with a DOS menu screen that asks you to select what type of audio you would prefer. There are four choices. The first is Sound Blaster, which covers all of those other compatible boards. The Thunderboard, the Pro Audio Spectrum, uh, AdLib would all have been covered under selection number one, Sound Blaster. Number two is the Roland MT32. Number three, it says Sound Canvas, which was also a Roland product and four is quit. So if you've decided that you've made a terrible decision at this point, you could abort mission and not proceed further. This is as good a time as any to talk about Roland's hardware add-ons, the Roland MT32 and the Roland sound canvas. These were external devices that could be purchased and connected to IBM PCs to improve the quality of MIDI music. I hope I've got that right, uh, because I never owned one, and I didn't know anyone who owned one because they were very expensive. The Roland MT32, and by the way, MT stands for multi-timber, uh, was advertised as a MIDI synthesizer module that originally retailed for $695. An old friend of mine used to have a set of digital drums. So the drum heads themselves were made out of plastic and didn't make any musical sounds at all. But every time that you hit one of those plastic snare drums or plastic toms or plastic cymbals, a signal was sent to a drum module. In fact, the one that my friend owned was a Roland drum module. And so when you hit the cymbal, even though it was a big round piece of plastic, a signal was sent to the drum module and out the other side came a MIDI sound that sounded like a real cymbal. Now, the advantage of this was number one, the cymbal, different types of cymbals could be selected. Uh, number two, it could tell how hard you hit the symbol. And so different levels of loudness uh, would be processed by this. So in a way, this is a similar product. This was a sound module that you could attach to your computer. And instead of using the relatively elementary MIDI sounds that would have been included on a vintage sound card or produced by a vintage computer, these devices had very good quality. So just to give you a quick example, I'm going to play two short bits of audio. Uh, these are from the Sierra game police quest three. And this is from a YouTube video that was uploaded by a user named Dylan Dow 3000, who has compared the output audio 
between a sound blaster on these early Sierra games and a Roland MT-32. So this is what Police Quest 3 sounds like, uh, starting with the Sierra logo and then just a few seconds of the opening theme song. My favorite part is when you can hear that little police siren come in in the background. Now, this is the exact same game, but with the audio running through a Roland MT-32. So as you could tell, the MIDI quality through the MT-32 is much higher. But again, it came at a cost with a retail price of nearly $700. Now, over time, MIDI audio on sound cards, like with Sound Blaster's AW32, got better. But also the price of these hardware boxes dropped. If you look today, they are still very collectible. The Roland MT32 sells for between two and $400 on eBay, and Roland Sound Canvas still sells for $100 to $300 on eBay. Now, if you want to hear this wonderful music, but don't want to spend money on one of those vintage pieces of hardware, there are multiple ways to do that. The first is by using an MT32 emulator. One of those is called Munt, M-U-N-T. And the output between Munt and an actual Roland MT32 is very, very difficult, if not impossible, to discern to most people. So this is a piece of software that can be run. Uh, it's compatible with DOSBox. It takes a little bit of configuration, but what this software does is emulate the sounds from an original MT32. Now, even more recently is a new device called the MT32 Pi. That Pi refers to a Raspberry Pi. There is an image you can download and put on a Raspberry Pi that essentially turns that Raspberry Pi into an emulated MT32. Now, this has become very popular, not just among Raspberry Pi enthusiasts, but it has been adopted by the Mr. community, the Mr. being the FPGA computer that plays Amiga titles, Atari ST titles, and uh, IBM PC titles, all of which can leverage the sound from the MT32 Pi. So to build one of those, I believe you can even use the smaller Raspberry Pi A all the way up to a Raspberry Pi 3B. Um, so it just depends on what you want to spin, what you have on hand. But the Raspberry Pi can emulate the MT32. So if you want to get the sound, uh, these really rich MIDI sounds out of some of these old games, that's another way to do it. I should say that not every game supported the Roland uh, MT32 or the Sound Canvas, uh, but Sierra was one of its biggest supporters along with LucasArts. So if you're playing those style of games, you'll get a much better audio experience if you're using one of these add-on devices. So we'll jump to the title screen here, and right off the bat, we are greeted with a full-screen Sierra logo. It is uh, very large. It is VGA, so you know great graphics are coming. And then we see a fuzzy little character 
walk out. We can hear footsteps. And then he says, shoo. Uh, then we get to the next screen and we have the incredible machine logo and the entire screen around the logo is filled with a working machine. Uh, so we can see some of the things that will happen in the game. There's a ball that drops. There's a balloon that goes off. Uh, there are scissors and ropes and lights. Uh, so we can see a machine actually working. That screen flips to a second one where we can see more parts of the machine and we can see credits listed all the way around. Now, each time it goes to the second screen, the music changes. The first screen always has the Incredible Machine main theme song, but the second screen has different random music from the game. And so if you watch this intro a few times and let it cycle through, you can hear some of the different fun songs that are included in the Incredible Machine. Once the game starts, we are taken to a menu screen. On the left-hand side, we have a few options. Uh, under the control panel, we can adjust the volume of the game. You can exit the game and restart or reset the level. There are slider bars for the gravity and air pressure, but when you are solving the levels that come with the game, you cannot adjust those features. Those are only there for when you are creating your own machines. Uh, there is a freeform mode, which you can swap to. We'll talk a little bit about that, but essentially that is an area where you can simply create your own machines without having to play any of the levels. Um, there's also a button to select puzzle. And so we'll talk how you can select different puzzles uh, momentarily. At the bottom of the screen, you will see the goal. So on the first level, it says goal, make the basketball go through the hoop. And then we have a slightly smaller version of the level and we can see what all is uh, going to appear on that level. And then at the bottom, they haven't, nothing has started moving yet, but you will see three sections for your scoring. There is uh, your score and then there is the bonus one and bonus two. And the far right hand side of the screen, we can see the machine parts that we will be using to solve this puzzle. So if you click on the slightly smaller version of the puzzle, we will be taking to the first level. Uh, again, on the right hand side, we have all the parts that we'll be able to use on this particular puzzle. They are, uh, presented vertically on the far right hand side. And if there are more pieces that will fit, there are two little arrows at the top, which can be used to cycle through more pieces. Uh, there is a button to start the machine. It looks like a runner and there's a guy holding a starter pistol. So when you click that, it will start whatever will happen with the machine. And you can press that button again to stop the machine. And then when you press it, it will restart everything. I should mention that the parts on the right-hand side also have small numbers underneath them, and that represents how many of those objects. So, for example, there may be a picture of a gear and the number three, which means there are three gears in your inventory that you can use on this level. Uh, each piece can also be rotated, and some of them can be resized. For example, some of the ramps uh, and conveyor belts can be made longer or shorter. Uh, and there is a, a little icons, little arrow icons that will appear over each piece that you could click and stretch uh, the pieces that can be resized. Uh, again, now at the bottom, you have those same three score areas. And one of the bonus wheels is now turning. <laughs> and that is our timer telling us it's time to get started and solve this first puzzle. Uh, so if you click on this first puzzle again, uh, we are presented with the goal, which was make a ball go through a hoop. It doesn't really look like a hoop, but you get the idea. Um, when you press the start button, what we will see is a bowling ball, a single bowling ball that is, is hovering in space and it immediately drops, which also tells us that some of the objects in this game are sensitive to gravity. Anything that looks like a ball, whether it's a bowling ball, a baseball, a tennis ball, uh, is subject to gravity, which means if you place that somewhere on the field and hit go, that ball will fall down. It will be pulled down by gravity. Um, and it may, each of those things are affected differently by gravity. For example, a tennis ball will bounce, but a bowling ball will not bounce. So as we press start, we can see the bowling ball fall 
and it hits a hamster in a cage. And once that cage is jostled by the bowling ball, the hamster just starts running. And we can see that to the side of the cage, there is a little pulley or a little gear. Uh, and so when the hamster's running, the gear, which is attached to that hamster cage, starts moving. So this tells us essentially what we're going to need to do to solve this puzzle. On the first puzzle, we have some conveyor belts. We have some, uh, I guess I would just call them normal belts that could be used. Uh, and we have some additional hamsters in cages. And so by connecting the first hamster to the first conveyor belt, and when the ball drops on that hamster cage with the pulley connected to the other pulley on the conveyor belt, the conveyor belt turns and it launches another bowling ball off into space. So we could stop the puzzle at that point. We can move and pull out our second hamster in a conveyor belt or a hamster in a cage. Uh, and then you can keep doing this. Or you, once you see how the puzzle is constructed, you can just pull out all the pieces and put them where they need to go. And so essentially by linking multiple hamsters to multiple conveyor belts, we will see these series of bowling balls be launched. And eventually the top one, uh, when it turns, will move the basketball and shoot it through the little hole. And once you have done that, you have completed level one of the incredible machine. Congratulations. You have 80 to go. <laughs> I think the first game contains 80 puzzles. It's interesting that the marketing says more than 75. I'm always fascinated by things like that. To me, when a game says it has more than 75, I think it probably has 76, but in this case it has 80. So once you've put the basketball through the hole and you've completed the first puzzle, uh, a few things happen. Number one, the bonus timer that was counting down stops. So you get a score for completing the puzzle. The bonus timer, you get whatever's left on the bonus timer added, and then you get whatever's on the second bonus timer, which the manual does not explain any of the scoring system, but I will tell you how it works very shortly. You may notice in the first level that there are some pieces that you don't really need. There are some extra ramps that you can solve this puzzle very easily with without using those ramps. And again, in the early puzzles, the game essentially gives you only the pieces you need to solve these puzzles. Uh, in this one, we get the only thing that's available to us are hamsters and belts that connect things that move. And so it's pretty obvious how this one is solved, but as the game advances, it will be giving you more and more pieces and many pieces that don't make sense to use. Uh, so sometimes those pieces can be used. I think sometimes they're red herrings and I think sometimes they can be used for alternate solutions. So uh, as, as you get further into the puzzles, the more leeway you have in how you solve the puzzles. Uh, once you've completed the first puzzle, uh, after you get your score, you will see a pop-up that says new password. And the password that I got for beating level one is Sierra-ZZ19A2BR8. So <laughs> if you were to reload this game a second time and you wanted to skip right to level two because you've already beaten this one, you could go to the password and uh, there's a password entry blank and you could type in Sierra-ZZ19A2BR8. It's very difficult for me to say uh, without saying <laughs> uh, bravo and, and uh, things like that. But uh, so you, you get this number. I don't know why they needed to be so complicated. There's only 80 level numbers. And so you would think a two or three character uh, field would probably randomize it enough where people couldn't guess those. But uh, for some reason, they're all very long and complicated that way. Uh, the graphics in this game are very nice. They are VGA graphics. All of the little pieces are detailed. You can see the little hamster. You can see the bowling ball, which has shading. Um, it's not realistic looking like modern style graphics, but it it's very good. Uh, I had no complaints about the graphics in this game. Uh, and the music, again, like we talked about, Every level has some sort of music playing, a MIDI-style track. You also have uh, a certain amount of digital sound effects that take place. Not everything that happens in the game makes a sound effect happen, but many of the things do. So you have this combination of sound effects 
and uh, music playing. So this is something that for me as a kid, once I got a sound blaster and a sound blaster, you know, 16 and, and began upgrading, uh, this surpassed the limitations that I had on eight bit computers, like with the Commodore that only has three voices and even the Amiga mini games make you choose between, do you want music or do you want sound effects? But this, as uh, the PC began to advance, that was no longer a choice we were forced to make in our games. The controls, as I mentioned, are completely, well, 99% handled by the mouse, other than typing in your password, I would, I guess, for uh, the different levels. Um, the icons that pop up will tell you how to rotate. So some pieces have to be rotated. For example, the hamster, every time that uh, a ball drops on the hamster, he runs and he's facing to the right. And so the gear will turn clockwise. If you need it to turn counterclockwise, there is a small little button that shows arrows that show that you can rotate that piece to the other direction or flip it uh, horizontally. Now, the icon that shows that you could rotate pieces looks like almost like the recycle icon that we're used to seeing now today for recycling. So when I first picked this game up recently, I mistook that as being that you could throw this piece away or recycle it, uh, which was not the case. Um, when you play older games, there are certain norms that hadn't been developed yet or hadn't been accepted or hadn't been adapted yet. And so one example of that is when you select other levels, you could pick the level from a list. And then if you double click it with the mouse, nothing happens. You have to select it and then move the mouse over and click an okay button. Uh, you know, after having used a, a PC for so many years, we assume that double-clicking something, double-clicking an icon will launch a program. Double-clicking uh, text highlights a word. You know, we just know how these things are supposed to work. And so when it doesn't work in the same way, uh, it throws us off a little bit. So is that something to ding the game over? Not really, but it just shows us that those norms in uh, control interfaces were still uh, settling out, I suppose. One thing I will say about the controls is I felt like the game was missing an overall main menu. The options for adjusting the volume and moving to the level select screen were included in a upper left-hand corner in between each level. But I thought if this game were re-released today with a modern interface, there would be either a key or a button or a thing to click on on the mouse that would flip you to another screen that would give you access to all those things on one screen. So again, this is just something that reflects the date and age in which uh, the interface was developed. So if you're going to play the incredible machine, uh, the first 10, I think maybe 15 and maybe up to 20 levels are going to seem very easy because those are labeled as tutorial levels. So each one of those levels is essentially designed to show you what one tool in the Incredible Machines toolbox can do. The first level shows you how those hamster cages work and by how connecting those two conveyor belts, you can make those run. Uh, another level shows you how dynamite works. Another level shows you how the ropes and pulleys work. And so each level is basically, or the first, oh, the first several tutorial levels are relatively easy because it's presenting you with a new tool and saying, solve this puzzle and you're going to need to use this tool. After you get past the tutorial levels, things start getting more complicated. The problem is you don't want to jump past those because you have to learn how those things. Some of the tools are more complicated than others. It's pretty obvious how a pair of scissors is going to work or how a seesaw is going to work. But there are generators and motors and electric lights that have pull switches and light switches and things like that. So you have to go through these tutorial levels to figure out how each piece works and then once you get into the main part of the game, what you'll quickly learn is that many of the pieces have multiple functions. I'll give you an example. The teeter-totter 
or seesaw, whatever you, you want to call it, uh, has many uses. Uh, if a ball falls down on one side, we know that the other side is going to shoot up into the air. That's how a seesaw works. But by attaching a rope to the bottom of the other side of the seesaw, we know that when that side goes up, it's going to pull that rope up. And so we can use a pulley to... When that goes up, maybe pull something else down. We can use that to lift something. We can use it to move something. So there are a lot of different things that can be done by attaching something to the seesaw. Seesaws can also be used as uh, interference. Like if there's a ball that's rolling somewhere too fast, you could put a seesaw in its way and stop a ball from rolling or make it roll up one hill and, and then roll back on itself. So as you get into the more advanced type puzzles, you'll start to use these pieces uh, in other ways than they were intended to be used. Uh, I think that's one of the most exciting things about this game is when uh, you're presented with a puzzle and a certain amount or a select number of pieces and you solve the puzzle not using some of the intended pieces. And it's like, it's not like you're cheating. It's like you're thinking outside the box. And that to me is one of the most fun things in this game is solving puzzles in different ways. Now, the first time you play through the game, all you want to do is solve every puzzle and it will take you a while to get through all 80 puzzles. But when you play back through and you start coming up with alternative ways to do things, I think that's uh, where the beauty and the longevity in this game uh, exists. Now, I mentioned before that the scoring is not really covered in the manual. I, I mentioned it vaguely, but I did find an online article that says uh, each level by, by uh, solving each level, you are awarded a certain amount of points and that will be added to your score. So that is the first set of numbers on the bottom. Uh, the bonus number one, which is ticking down is obviously the speed. And then bonus number two gets added to your score based on difficulty. I don't think that's the difficulty in how you solve the puzzle. I believe that is the difficulty rating given to the actual puzzle. So you don't really gain or lose points based on how you solve each puzzle, uh, only in the amount of time in which you save the puzzle. Now, the reviews of this game were very positive. Uh, Dragon Magazine gave this a four out of five. Uh, Computer Gaming World said that they absolutely love this game, that there was nothing else like it. Uh, Electronic Gaming Monthly reviewed the 3DO version of this game, and they gave it 7.25 out of 10. And one of their complaints was that the controls on the 3DO don't work as good as a mouse. So I suspect if they had uh, played the PC version, they probably would have given it a higher ranking. Uh, I did read that The Incredible Machine was nominated for an award at the 1993 Game Developers Conference and that it was the winner of several prizes due to its innovative style and simulation abilities. Uh, and then it says it was innovative enough that Sid and Al's Incredible Tunes, which I'll talk about in just a moment, earned Jeff Tunnell and Chris Cole a patent for the game's concepts. Now, there are people who develop games, and sometimes there are people who develop engines to run their games, and sometimes people create genres. And The Incredible Machine, with its engine, was essentially creating its own genre, this uh, machine building puzzle solving genre. And so the incredible machine again, which was released in 1993 for DOS Macintosh computers and the three DO was the first in many, many incredible machine games. Uh, it was quickly followed by the even more incredible machine also released in 1993, which appeared on DOS and Microsoft Windows and the Macintosh. Now, there was another spin-off game called Sid and Al's Incredible Tunes. Sid and Al's Incredible Tunes is a very similar style game, except for instead of solving machines uh, or solving puzzles, there are two cartoon characters, Sid and Al, and they are essentially set up in 
Looney Tune style scenes and you have to do something. So you may have to drop a mallet on one of their heads or launch one of the guys into space. So it is a very similar style game, but instead of solving a puzzle, you're doing something uh, to one of the characters. So that's Sid and Al's Incredible Tunes uh, and it's 1993 DOS only. Then there was the Incredible Tune Machine, which was 1994. That's Windows Windows and Macintosh, The Incredible Machine 2, which is 1994 also, that's DOS, Windows, and Macintosh, The Incredible Machine version 3.0, now this is 1995, and this is Windows and Macintosh, so there is no DOS release of The Incredible Machine version 3.0. Then there's a title called Arthur to Astaroth, no... Nazamakimura, I believe, Incredible Tunes. This is a 1996 release on PlayStation and Sega Saturn. Uh, this was a game released by Capcom, who had licensed the game and the engine for the Incredible Tunes for release uh, on those consoles. Later, we see the return of the Incredible Machine, and then there's a subtitle here called Contraptions. This was first released in 2000 for Windows and Macs. We have the Incredible Machine Even More Contraptions in 2001, the Incredible Machine Mega Pack, which is a Windows release in 2009, and finally, we have the Incredible Machine in 2011, which was released on the Apple iPad. That game also won multiple awards, including, I believe it was nominated for Puzzle Game of the Year on the iPad uh, in 2011. These games also inspired several other similar games. One of the most notable ones was Crayon Physics, which was one of the earliest iPhone games I ever had. It was a game where you could draw your own puzzle pieces and they responded with uh, real style physics is a really good game. And unfortunately uh, does not appear to be available on the app store anymore. The most modern iteration of the incredible machines is called contraption maker, which is available on steam for nine 99. The description reads contraption maker is an open ended sandbox puzzle game from the creators of the incredible machine build and solve elaborate contraptions with hamster motors, trampolines, alligators, wrecking balls, zombies, gears, lasers, ghosts, and over a hundred more parts. So based on that description, we can see that they have greatly increased the number of parts available. I think the original incredible machine has 45 parts. So this has more than a hundred. Of course, uh, the incredible machine did not have lasers or ghosts or zombies. And I find it interesting that they've changed the terminology because the description of the game has changed. I don't think at that time in the early to mid nineties, we didn't use the term uh, open sandbox. And so it's interesting that they describe it now as a open ended sandbox puzzle game. And uh, so, yeah, that's just kind of an example how uh, the terminology evolves as well. It's the same game, but this description makes it more clear to a new generation of gamers what this game is going to be like if you want to own an original copy of the incredible machine i did not see any available for sale on ebay now one of the problems with obtaining this game is that there are so many sequels and other versions that were released on cd only so finding an original in the original box is a little bit difficult to do if you're just wanting to play one of the Incredible Machine games, and I played this on ExoDOS. All the Incredible Machine games for DOS are available on ExoDOS for free. Uh, I did find a copy of even more Incredible Machines, uh, the PC version, which was complete in box for $0.99 cents plus $10 shipping on eBay. I also found a copy of Return of the Incredible Machine listed for $13.99 with free shipping. These are not rare or difficult to find. The only ones you may have trouble tracking down would be the original version in the large PC box uh, configuration. I did also find the Incredible Machine Mega Pack, which I believe is multiple versions of the Incredible Machine all on one CD. And it does say that this runs on XP, Vista, Windows 10, and Windows 11. And I found that available on eBay for $18.79. So if you're not a big Steam gamer, uh, you can pick up an actual physical copy and still play the Incredible Machine today. 
And now let's get into my personal memories of playing the Incredible Machine. The Incredible Machine is not the first game I ever played using a mouse. Now, I did not have an Amiga or Atari ST computer. I went directly from Commodore 64 to a PC. I did not own a mouse for my Commodore 64. So the IBM PC was the first computer that we owned that used a mouse. So maybe that's why I so closely associate the incredible machine with mouse gaming. Uh, this is not the only style of game that used a mouse. In fact, there were lots of different puzzle games and point and click adventures and all kinds of games, uh, and, and utilities that use the mouse. But for some reason, I just feel like this would not be the same game. If you had to use a joystick, for example, to drop and drag each piece over, I, I think the mouse gives you a more precise amount of control over each piece and locating the pieces that just wouldn't have been possible on other systems. I don't know whether or not this is considered to be the first physics sandbox game. I played a lot of games growing up, uh, starting all the way back to Pong and the Atari 2600 through today. And there was always something about presenting a three-dimensional world on a two-dimensional screen. Uh, this is a really old example, but if you think about something like Berserk, uh, or Castle Wolfenstein, one of those type of games. Uh, the people that are above you are in a different part of the room, and the people that are below you are in a different area. So you're looking at a 2D side view. It's a top-down view, but the people are presented sideways. It's it's a perspective that doesn't really make sense, in, you know, except in video games. So looking at in The Incredible Machine... It's like the first game I remember where when you would place a ball and hit go, the ball would drop off the bottom of the screen. It really made you feel like the game understood physics. When you would put a tennis ball next to a bowling ball and drop them both, first of all, I think we've all done the Isaac Newton experiment where we've dropped two things to see if they fall at the same rate. And if you put a bowling ball next to a tennis ball in this game, they will fall at the same rate. But when they hit the ground, the bowling ball will land there with a thud while the tennis ball will bounce off. So there is a certain amount of physics built into this game that uh, just makes it interesting. And it makes it interesting to the point where solving the puzzles is only part of the fun of this game. Creating your own machines is also fun. Now, it doesn't seem like it would be fun for very long, and especially today where we have so many competing forms of entertainment, I don't know that I would spend hours or days sitting down and trying to create levels. Uh, in theory, you could save levels and, and pass them to a friend, I suppose, but it's Probably not something we would do today, but at the time, just having this little virtual sandbox where you could build these machines using all kinds of crazy parts and save them and show them to friends uh, seemed, seemed really fun at the time. I think my favorite thing about The Incredible Machine, when I think back about the time and the era that I played it, is that it is the perfect level of difficulty. There are so many games I can think of that are too easy and so many, maybe even more, games that are too hard. But The Incredible Machine is perfectly balanced. You start off with tutorial levels that are a little too simple, but it never gets to the point where a level seems impossible. It only seems like you get to the point where levels will take more work or more thought. Um, but you never, you may even get, you may get stumped. I remember getting stumped on levels, but it doesn't ever seem like something is just impossible. And so I think that's one of the coolest things about this game. And one of my favorite memories thinking about is just trying to sit down 
it does feel like work <laughs> at times, but there is a general feeling of reward uh, that comes with solving some of the later puzzles. And so I think when I think back about this game, I think that's that's my biggest memory is that uh, it was just so much fun to work through those puzzles and come up with solutions that may or may not have been the same solutions that the programmer intended. Overall, I would say The Incredible Machine is definitely worth revisiting. If you've never played it before, uh, it's available on Exodos. You can play it through DOSBox, pretty much any DOS emulation system. You should be able to find a copy of this game, and you should be able to uh, play it pretty easily. If you're interested in that new version, of course, it's also available on Steam. Uh, if you're not interested in playing it, I would at least recommend going to YouTube and searching The Incredible Machine and watch videos and see what the game looks like. I did recently stream this game on my Twitch channel, and that video is available on uh, youtube.com forward slash Amigos Retro Gaming if you look for the Sprite Castle Plays playlist. I had intended on only playing three or four levels just to show what the game looked like, and I believe I played about... 20. <laughs> it is very easy to lose track of time while playing this game. It's it's very fun and there are a lot of games from this era, from the late 80s and early 90s that have not aged well, but I think this one has. I think it's as much fun now as it was back then. So definitely two thumbs up here on the incredible machine. Thanks for checking out Like a DOS. What did you think of this episode's game? What was your favorite DOS game? Send your thoughts to me at Rob O'Hara at RobOHara.com. You can also add your thoughts on Facebook at Facebook.com forward slash Robcast. Follow me on Twitter at Commodore. Come chat with me on the Amigos Retro Gaming Discord or leave a message on the podcast hotline, which is 405-486-YDKF. All Patreon supporters of my podcast get behind-the-scenes blog posts, weekly rando Rob videos, access to the Amigos Retro Gaming Discord server, and other additional perks. To find out more, visit patreon.com forward slash Rob O'Hara. Like a DOS is available from iTunes, the official Amigos podcast feed at anchor.fm forward slash Amigos podcast, and the RSS feed at podcast.robohara.com, where you can also find all my other podcasts, including Sprite Castle, You Don't Know Flat, Cactus Flax, Throwback Reviews, and Multiple Sadness. Thanks again for checking out the show. Now pull out your virtual hammers and screwdrivers, and we'll see you here next time on Like a DOS. Last but certainly not least, here is a very special shout-out to all of my Patreon supporters. For the month of February 2022, this includes Alan Hennessy, Alan Hudgens, Armadon Restel, Brian Barr, Carrie Clanton, Chris Folds, C. Dubs, Cowbird Boy, Dan Paradroid Heavey, Dave Velociraptor, David Hearn, David Modelat, Eric Stryanisi, Garrett Allier, Gary Heather, Hacker Radio, Jake Nonamaker, Jason Warrens, John Bodakar Schaller, John Treholt, Jose Cazada, Joshua Eckroth, Louis Dornfeld, Mark Alley, Mike McLaughlin, Mitsuyama, Mr. Bundy, Mr. Wacky, Nathan Dagenhart, Olaf Hope, Patrick Markey, Brad Max, Rydar and Christopher Bowe, Retro Trace, Rick Reynolds, Robot Doctor 82, Roy Jacobs, Scooter Prime, Scott Lambert, Scott Meredith, Scrap Arcade, Stephen Burt, Steve Rasmussen, The Slow Morris, Travis Gossie, Zeke Pabsky, Zerfall, and The Mysterious Cobra Kai. Extra special thanks to my 16-bit supporters, Bill Spear, Boat's Head Tavern BBS, Dan Creek, Dave Zilly, Edward Smith, Graham W. Vebke, John Morrison, Matt Nicholson, Matt Smith, Scott Van Drasick, Steve Sharippa, and Vintage Volts. <laughs>